So our reading is from first, uh, sorry, not first John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We're looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. You can find those on page 1068. Now, John 15 is right in the middle of something that we call the farewell discourse. It's an important part of the Gospel of John. It's a conversation, more of a monologue, but a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at the Last Supper. And it accounts for chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's five chapters of John are, comp- are composed of about two hours of time together, which is interesting. So there's a real expansion of time in John's gospel in the middle of it. There's Jesus going from place to place. You know, months could go by in the course of a paragraph, right? But here, five whole chapters detail what happened in two hours, two, three hours, when they have the Passover meal together. And so this is Jesus in the farewell discourse at the supper with them, preparing them for his departure, preparing them for his death. Now, turn back to chapter 13 if you can find it, because this is sort of the preamble or the, 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 the way that it's introduced by John. It's on page 1066, the year of the Norman conquest of England. It's easy to remember that way. Page 1066. And you look at chapter 13, and it says, they gathered for the Passover meal, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, which is an interesting way to start the meal. And it shows the servant leadership of Jesus, and he's modeling for them how they should treat each other, but he's also pointing forward to the cross. Because him taking taking this humble position of washing somebody else's feet when he's actually the master is just exactly what he does when he goes to the cross. The cross is a place of humiliation in the Roman world. And he goes to the cross so that he can cleanse the world. Isn't it interesting that this washing of feet, which is a way of him preparing the disciples for his departure, is also pointing to what he does when he departs, which is to save the world by his sacrifice. And so this is how it goes. If you, if you look at it, verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast... Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then a very beautiful passage. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Isn't that beautiful? He showed them the full extent of of his love. And that makes me wonder what was this full extent? What is this talking about? Was it that he was going to wash their feet? That was the full extent of his love? Or was it the whole supper and everything he was going to say to them in these five chapters, including praying for them? We call it the high priestly prayer, this beautiful prayer on their behalf to the Father. Or was it going to the cross for all of humanity? What was it? That was the full extent of his love that he wanted to show them. Which of those three things? The answer is yes, right? All of them. Everything that flows from this point is an example of the love that Jesus has, not just for his own, but for the world. John 3.16, God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. It all fits together. So that's introducing this section. It's called 
the farewell discourse is from John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. What we're looking at today is from John chapter 15, right smack in the middle, Jesus talking to the disciples. And I want you to pay attention to some organic metaphors, organic, maybe even agricultural metaphors that Jesus uses to make some comparisons. And then pay attention to repetition. A concept is introduced, it's tied to a few other concepts, Later on, it comes back with a little more nuance. And this is John writing. The, the word is like his paintbrush. And the parchment that he writes on is like his canvas. He's an artist. He's an artist with words. And so there's real artistry to what we're about to read. So I'm going to ask you to pay attention to that. Look for that. So let's read. Uh, let's go to our reading, page 1068, John 15, 1 through 17. Jesus speaks. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will become even more fruitful. You are, already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. That's how this starts. So we're going to come back to that phrase over and over again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And I want to point to that word true, because this is an important word for John. And there's several ways that this word plays out in our reading today. The Greek word there is aletheia. It means true or truth. And generally, the meaning of this word is something that is firm. 
something that can withstand a challenge. So you maybe think of a really big boulder, right? And you can push on that boulder and you can chisel at that boulder, but that boulder is going to stay that way. That's the mental image that the Greeks had of this word true. Something that can withstand a challenge, something that doesn't get knocked over as things come. And that makes sense for us. Something that is true will hold up to scrutiny. Does that make sense, right? Something that's true can be verified, right? Now, something that's been in my mind a lot lately, and I think some of yours too, is that we have this concept of fake news right now in our country. It's like this, this phrase arrived, I don't know when, a couple years ago, and, and it's, a very, it's a very bewildering idea to me, honestly, because how the, normally news is like trustworthy, but then there's fake news, so is that untrustworthy? And what I figured out is that there's two kinds of fake news, okay? One, fake news is actually true news, but I don't like it, right? So that's where I have an idea of how the world works. I have my own preconceived notions. I have my own narrative for how the world operates. And a fact comes into my view that contradicts my view of the world. And now I have a choice. I can go, well, that's fake news. Because please do not confuse me with the facts. That's, that's, we don't like that, right? Because interestingly enough, sometimes we base our own identity on our view of the world. And if something comes along and threatens our view of the world, it thus threatens our identity, and that's when we get a little crazy. That's when we start reacting. And one of the ways we react is saying, that must be fake. I don't need to hear it. Many of you are scientists or you've studied science. I think most of you know about something called confirmation bias. You know what confirmation bias is when you're, it's like if you're a researcher? A researcher will investigate something in the world, right? And they'll think to themselves, I think the world is thus. You know, I think mitochondria duplicate in this way, whatever. It could be anything, biology, anything, climate science, you name it. And so the problem with confirmation bias is we get so connected to our own view that when an alternative reality or an alternative fact comes into our view, we find a way to ignore it. We find a way to wash it out of our data set. Do, do scientists do this? Right? I mean, this is a problem with science sometimes, with bad scientists. A bad scientist is enthralled to their own confirmation bias. It's a problem. And I think that works with people, too. I mean, I'll give you an example. Say there's somebody that I don't particularly like. And then I spot them doing something nice for somebody. Well, that kind of upsets my apple cart. A little bit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Then I'm like, then I have a choice. Oh, they're just doing it for show. That's not really sincere. They're trying to gain some brownie points. That's confirmation bias, because I've already decided they're a rotten person. So the fact that they just did something nice, there's, that's fake news. There's, there's some other motive behind it. Now, here's the thing. A good scientist, a good scientist, and a healthy person are fascinated by facts that counter their own preconceived view. A scientist who is a good scientist would go, 
oh, there's a fact that contradicts my thinking. I better understand. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that fact will push me into a better realm of science, right? And a healthy person would go, gosh, I was wrong. What a relief. They're actually a nice person. Maybe I need to give them another chance, right? That's what healthy, flexible people can do, is they can set aside their own confirmation bias. So there's, I'm talking about truth now, right? That's one aspect of fake news. Fake news is when we get information that we don't like and we have a choice. We have to decide whether it's true or not. The other kind of fake news is actually fake. It's like verifiably not true, okay? Like if I were to tell you that the, the moon was made of cheese or populated by people that look like Quakers, you know? There's a Mormon book that says that wrong. Still is there, it's, you know. They've edited it out, but it's still, if you go back to their archives, they'll find it. Joseph Smith said so. Well, what are you going to do? Um, well, I think we could go to the moon. Um, some people think that was fake, so we have a problem already. But let's assume everybody in this room thinks we actually made it to the moon in 1969 when, when Craig was just a few days old. Is that right? You've told me that story. How old were you? A month old? Sitting, sitting in your parents' lap, yeah, July 22nd, something like that, 1969, before I was born. But I was in the world. I was. Um, so a, we could go to the moon with a shovel and dig down a few feet and not find cheese and go, that's fake news. That's not true. So there is two kinds of fake news, right? The kind that we don't want to hear, and there's a kind that's really false. But this meaning of truth in John kind of pushes back at both of these views of falseness. Something that's true is something that can be tested. Something is true is something that can withstand scrutiny. Okay? Um, and now I've got to find my place because I closed it. I've got riffing here. So it wasn't riffing. It was all in here. I just got to find it. So, right, so truth is a concept in the New Testament and in John that has a lot of meanings. And like I said, one of them is firmness. It can hold up to a challenge. And as a covenanters, members of the covenant denomination, we have this rich heritage. One of those heritages is that if somebody says something about God or, you know, they believe something, um, we ask this question, where is it written? Show me in the scriptures. And, and can what you just said bear the scrutiny of the witness of Scripture. And if it can, then we should accept it, because that's a good thing. But if it can't, then it needs to be knocked over by Scripture. And that's okay. It's okay to knock over non-scriptural ideas and not live by them. That's actually what we're called to over and over again by people in the New Testament. So, here's a few other definitions of this word true or truth. Um, that which has certainty and force. Okay, That on which one can rely, sounds good, right? A true teaching or a true faith. And then very interestingly, especially in John, authenticity or divine reality. We can talk about this some other time, but there's this sense that there is an actual reality that governs the universe, and it's God's reality. We create our false realities and try to live in them, and we do until it doesn't work anymore. Some people can create a reality distortion field around themselves, 
and say that 2 plus 2 is 5, and if they've got a strong enough force of personality or if they're your boss, they can make you say 2 plus 2 is 5. But 2 plus 2 isn't 5. It doesn't withstand. Truth is the divine reality that is the actual reality. And I could, you could almost say that our task as Christians sometimes is to find ways to get ourselves out of our false realities that we've created for ourselves for all sorts of reasons and actually submit to God's reality. And God's reality is different. We're going to see what that reality is in this reading. But part of it has to do with community. Part of it has to do with who our master truly is who we care about the most. That's the divine reality. So, Jesus says this, I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. <clears throat> if you look at this closely, if you look at your Bible, in fact, take a look at it right now, you'll see that there's probably not, depending on your translation, there's probably not a paragraph marker starting with verse 7. Does anyone have a paragraph marker that starts with verse 7? You probably have it like at verse, well, where's the next one after 7? 9? 9, and the one before is probably at 5, right? Is that right? Okay. So paragraph markers are not in the original text. In fact, the original text doesn't, sometimes doesn't even have spaces between words. It's just this long stream of letters, and you have to decipher where each word ends and begins, which is fun and challenging. There's no capitalization. There's not a lot of punctuation, really. It's just very interesting. Neither are there verse numbers in the original manuscript or chapter numbers or paragraph markers. And our translators put all those things in there for us as a way to aid us in understanding the scriptures. And so when we see a paragraph marker, there's some sense, just like if you're writing a letter or a, writing a letter or a report for English class, that when you start a new paragraph, you're starting a new but maybe related idea. But I would submit to you that we really need a paragraph marker at verse 7, okay? Because one structure of this is that verses 1 through 6 are a miniature parable that Jesus tells. And that 7 through 17 is his explanation of the parable. And if it's not a parable exactly, you could say it's an allegory at a minimum, but I think it's a parable. And the parable goes like this. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Wow. Don't a lot of parables have agricultural things going on? In fact, Jesus tells another parable. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So there's another parable about vineyards in the New Testament for sure. But there's a lot of parables about vineyards in the Old Testament, and I just read one for you a little while ago. Did you remember it? Isaiah 5. Israel is my vineyard, but my vineyard did not give me good fruit, gave me bad fruit. And what am I going to do with my vineyard? That's a parable in the Old Testament. And we know what it does. And what's great is if you were then to read Isaiah 35 after Isaiah uh, 5, and we talked about Isaiah 35 a while back, all the desolation and the brokenness and the dry ground gets redeemed eventually. But this is a warning. Isaiah 5 is a warning to my people. I'm looking for righteousness, but I find bloodshed. My fruit, my vines give me no good fruit. They give me bad fruit. That's a parable. Six other times, I'm going to hold up a pinky here. Six other times in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a vineyard. Six other times. It's a common theme. 
Jesus is up to something here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. And in this vine, good fruit is rewarded. A, a good branch produces good fruit, and it's pruned. Ouch. Ouch. You know what I'm talking about when I say pruned? If God were to prune us, that's a very important, a very necessary, a very helpful thing for us. A good branch bears good fruit, and it's pruned so that even more good fruit comes from it. Praise God. A bad branch produces bad fruit or no fruit, and it's cut off at the base. It's thrown away, and eventually it'll get gathered up and burned. So this is a parable. I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and you are the branches. Uh, remain in me, and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. It's a parable. Now look at verse 7. Again, it's in the middle of that paragraph. I think it should be in a new paragraph. Because now Jesus is beginning to explain his own parable, which he sometimes does. Not often, but sometimes. And he says this. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, and so on. And we're going to look at this. It's really great. Um, if you remain in me, then this is what life in the true vine looks like. You will receive, verse 7 says, you will receive what you ask for. Because I think you will ask for it as somebody who is connected to Jesus. Now, if I'm connected to Jesus, I may not ask to win the lottery. Well, it would solve a lot of problems, but you know what? It would bring a thousand more other problems. So you don't, wouldn't ask for that, and that's not what's being offered. What you truly desire when you're connected with Jesus is what Jesus wants. Your passion and your desires change. And when Jesus is connected to you as the vine to the branches, you ask for things, and it says here, you will ask for them and you will receive it. Verse 7. Verse 8, you will bear fruit. Verse 11, your joy will be complete. Verse 13, you will lay down your life for your friends. Verse 15, now you're on a different level with Jesus. You're not his servant anymore. You are his friends. Servants don't know what the master's business is, but friends do. And he says, you know all my business. Everything the Father has told me, I have shared with you. Everything's on the table. Everything's out in the open. We're equals in that respect, and that's good news. So it's a parable that gets explained. I am the true vine, and my Father is the garden. And life in the true vine means that you're connected. You're connected to as a branch, you're connected to the core of the vine, and actually, not just to the core of the vine, but to other branches. This is an allegory or a simile for community with Christ at the center. Does that sound like anything that you have encountered, like in the last half hour or so? Uh, hour, sorry. You're in it. This is a community that's connected to each other with Jesus Christ in the center. This is what Jesus is talking about. is lived out in actuality in this very moment. Praise God for the church, for all her flaws. Praise God for the church. And what does it look like 
when you're in the true vine. You sacrifice for each other. You wash each other's feet. Remember that Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet. Isn't that interesting? That he washed Judas's feet? He, he said, somebody's going to betray This is where he says, somebody's going to betray me. I'm about to share a piece of bread with someone who's going to betray me. And then he kind of gives a piece of bread to Judas. And, oh, okay. And the rest of them are like, whoa. And Judas leaves and betrays Jesus. The full extent of his love is that he even washed the feet of the betrayer. Wow. That's amazing to me. Community in the true vine is marked by love. It's not marked by like as opposed to love. This is interesting. You know, I, I could say to myself, I don't always enjoy being with somebody. Is that okay to say? Actually, it is because I can't change that. I can't change what I prefer. Jesus can, but I, like, I can't change. I mean, there's, I don't always enjoy the presence of some people. Nobody in this room, but you know what I'm saying. Like, there was a man who cursed at me on the road the other day, and I think it would be a hard, because I got in his way, uh, turning my truck around. Well, okay. Uh, it'd be hard for me to go have a cup of coffee with him today. Maybe in a week, you know, it's okay. Uh, I can't help that I don't really like that man right now. God will change that. I'll give it time. But love is a decision. The love that's part of this true community with Christ at the center is a decision. Yeah, I don't like necessarily like being around that person, but I love them because God loves me, because Christ loves me, and I'm connected to them. Jesus is point, painting a picture of a new community that revolves around him. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Oh, so this is what it looks like in a community that's not connected to the true vine. I'm going to tell you what it is now. It's not what I've been saying before, but what follows now is what an unfaithful or a false community is, a community that's not based on the truth of who Jesus is, that verifiable truth that stands up. If we were in an unfaithful or a false community, then we wouldn't serve God. We wouldn't connect to each other through the love of Christ. We would all just do for ourselves what we want for ourselves. We would follow our own agendas and our own preferences as more important. If you read Judges 21, it's a horrible story about how all of Israel went and picked on, and by picked on, that's like a euphemism. They went and picked on part of one of the other tribes of Israel and eradicated them, and not exactly eradicated them, but killed all the men and took all the wives and daughters for themselves and slaughtered all sorts of people. It's a horrible story at the end of Judges. And do you know how Judges ends? In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's false community. That's the community that says, me first. I don't care about others. I'm going to take what I want. It doesn't matter. The warning is clear. When we disconnect from the true vine, we get more than pruned. 
We get cut off, we get gathered up, and we get thrown into the fire. We are of no use to God. We do not bear fruit that will last. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I have a question for you. What if I fail? What if I fail at this? I just painted kind of a frightening picture. What if I am not in the true vine, but I'm in the unfaithful vine, the vine of Isaiah 5? So I'm going to give you a confession right now. I am in the unfaithful vine. I have confirmation bias. I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm taken in by fake news, or I call things fake news that I don't want to see as real. I fail at authentic community. I do what is right in my own mind. I let my woundedness from others turn into anger. I don't sacrifice for others. I don't wash other people's feet. I don't love as the Father loved me. Now maybe, but I don't know because I only know about myself. Maybe you're a little bit like that yourself. Maybe. If not, praise God. We don't have time to go into all the ways that I have failed at at this community that Jesus calls us into when he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So what am I to do? What can I do? I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And that sentence alone is the whole answer, isn't it? Right? Because I'm connected with Jesus. Even though I make a bunch of mistakes, I'm still connected to him. And if I'm connected to Jesus, and the only way I'm connected to Jesus is to to say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I cannot bear good fruit on my own. Can't do it. All I can say, Lord Jesus, is connect to me. Hold on to me and don't let go. And the reality of the vine is that life and energy, and vitality, and health come from the core of the vine, and it spreads out to the branches. Does that make sense? I mean, this is the simplest thing in the world, isn't it? Where does the moisture for the leaf come from? It comes from the grounds, and the roots, and the center of the tree, and it goes out. Those leaves don't have a little cup that they collect water from the rain with. They don't. So in the same way, even though I'm a broken person who's made all sorts of mistakes, yet I am connected to Jesus. And he pours his life into me at the expense of his own, praise God. He pours into me everything. His grace, his love, his vitality, his life. And so I can't do this on my own. My only claim is that Jesus has connected to me. And he heard my prayer that I just said, don't let go. I need you. Everyone in this room, I venture to say, has said the same thing to Jesus. Haven't you? And if you haven't, well, let's talk. Really, I, let's talk. Because that's a great gift. This is where full and complete joy does come. It's when you stop thinking that you can do it all on your own. And instead, you just say, I just have to connect to Jesus, and he will do through me what I cannot do for myself. So 
He'll redeem me and give me a new life and a new start. I am the true vine. My father is the garden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for Jesus, our vine. Help us branches to live with each other in community and peace and love. Self-sacrifice and to wash each other's feet. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. And love each other as you have loved us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.